Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Lisa Cypress Kamen is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and integrated well-being. Let's get to it. Here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. And today we are talking about a subject that is near and dear to my heart and those of my family, and that is cooking and eating, eating joyfully, eating foods that help us feel well-nutritioned and elevate our mood. And my first guest today has written a book called Happy Foods, Over 100 Mood-Boosting Recipes. Karen Wang Biggs is a classically trained chef, nutritionist, culinary instructor, as well as an author. After working in Hong Kong at the Mandarin Oriental and other restaurants, she returned to San Francisco with her rich culinary skills. Ready for a shift, she returned to school and gained her certification in holistic nutrition. Merging her passion for cooking with her knowledge of nutrition has allowed her to help people achieve optimal health through detoxification and weight loss workshops, as well as therapeutic cooking classes. Karen is also an expert fermenter, and I want to talk with you about that, Karen, and founder (laughs) of CrowdSource. Welcome. Karen, you are on the road. From where are you meeting us today? Okay, actually, um, well, I live in San Francisco, but I'm a little north of San Francisco today in Sonoma. Lucky you. Yes. (laughs) I was actually teaching um, a cooking class up here yesterday. Wow. Let's talk about the impact of food and mood, because most people clearly understand the impact of what we eat, how it affects our weight, and um, in theory, how it affects health. But what you're really talking about is something I think that is more powerful and even more impactful, and that is about improving energy, mood, and emotion. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, You know, people... um understand when they've had too many slices of pizza or drank too much beer and they have indigestion. But very few people make the connection or the leap to the next step when they wake up the next day and they feel lousy or even hours later when they feel lousy. And um, they don't understand that it's actually connected 
to the food. And, you know, I just brought up pizza and beer as an example. But for some people, it could be something as seemingly innocuous as a slice of toast. So there's a lot behind food, um, but in particular, food as the medicine, if you will, that makes us happy. Well, and, and, and food as medicine is something that we have explored on the show before, really talking about culinary medicine and programs that are cropping up at medical schools around the country, and which seems to me to represent a much more holistic and user-friendly approach to taking command of our health. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, if you look through uh, various eating or dietary uh, protocols coming from, you know, ancient societies such as from Asia, China, or even the Greeks or Romans, there were a lot of written um, documentations on, you know, how food affects us. And so I think it's time that we should revisit how to use natural products such as food or, you know, drinking natural um, beverages derived from herbs that can help to elevate our mood rather than taking medication. Let's talk a little bit about the nuts and bolts of this and what, what, you've, what, what goodies you have in the book, Happy Foods. What sure. are the top three items that we can remove from our diet starting today, today that will okay. improve our energy and mood? Okay. Number one uh, would be sugar and in particular processed sugar. There are a lot of natural sugars that you can enjoy, and you know that's in our uh, in my book, or we can talk about that. So sugar. The second one, uh, something that's very topical right now, and probably a lot of your listeners are perhaps on it or maybe contemplating, um, and that would be gluten. So gluten is a protein that's found in wheat, barley, and rye. So getting off gluten, and then the third thing um, is actually. Don't be fearful of good, healthy fats. So low-fat diet, throw that out the door. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, what about um, dairy? I mean, this is something else that uh, in working with clients, and not in a nutritional capacity, but mm -hmm. in, in talking about coaching people with positive psychology and addressing nutrition as a component of their treatment plan, that I, I say, you know, take the white substances out. Yes, you know, um, dairy, you brought up a good point. Many people are allergic um, to dairy. So if you know that you have an um, allergy to, to dairy or, you know, if you have symptoms such as like a runny nose or if you have any kind of acne or skin issues, then dairy would be an additional item that you want to look at. Although having said that, many people, uh, they do well with yogurt because it has the probiotics in it. And some people actually do very well with raw dairy, which is not processed at all. Interesting. Um, yeah. I, be, before we go too much further, I want to talk about the, the probiotic um, aspect because you are an expert fermenter, as, as, as I mentioned in the opening. And I would love for you to talk a little bit about finding probiotic sources um, from other foods beyond just uh, yogurt and some of the dairy foods. Right. Uh, so, you know, most people know the way to get probiotic is through, uh, through you know, yogurt, fermented uh, dairy product. Uh, some people take supplements, but and I used to do that as well. But now that I've become a, a fermenter, an avid fermenter, a passionate fermenter, I am getting my source of probiotics through fermented vegetables, such as making sauerkraut or kimchi or pickles. Yep. I, I, and myself as well. I am not a fermenter, but I have a girlfriend 
who is a, 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 a wickedly good fermenter. Okay. And, <laughs> Sounds like I have to meet her. <laughs> I think you do. My girlfriend, Pammy, my friend, Pammy, she is, a, she, she'll, she'll get a kick out of this that I'm talking about her and her, she calls herself gutsy foods and oh, which is pretty cool. Um, but but the, the the fermenting and the kimchi and using the ginger and the garlic and all these different vegetables that one would not normally ferment yeah. is her solution for people who are dairy intolerant. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's great. And I find that um, over time, when you start to make your own ferments at home, you sort of get into a routine where, you know, you, you always keep a little at home and... The important thing is to eat fermented foods in a small amount regularly, ideally with each meal, because it actually helps you to digest the other foods that you're eating during that meal. And then so it helps the digestion. It helps you to pull out the nutrients while it's populating your gut with the good bacteria, the probiotics. And then in turn, it helps to stimulate your immune system. Yes. Um, Let's talk about the value of protein and particularly to start one's day and how that affects mm-hmm. mood and health. Right. Um, I, I'm a huge advocate of having um, a breakfast that's really substantial. And to, so to quote someone, um, Adele Davis, who was, she was the queen of nutrition before nutrition was even on the map. And her saying is breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince and dying like a pauper. So oh. Yeah, taking that lead, breakfast is your most important meal of the day because, you know, you've slept, well, hopefully you've slept maybe in eight or nine hours. Um, so you, your body was fasting, sleeping. And a lot of people think that when you're sleeping, you're doing nothing. But in fact, your body is going through a lot of chemical processes, such as making neurotransmitters that you need, including neurotransmitters that helps to boost uh, your mood. And it's creating... Um, antioxidants that help you detox. Uh, I mean, it's doing a lot of things. So you are actually spending energy while you are sleeping. So when you wake up, you need to refuel. Um, Mm. And the worst thing you can do, opposite of protein, is to eat something that's heavy in sugar and carbohydrates. So the protein is important Mm. to stabilize your blood sugar first thing in the morning, to give you the um, amino acids, so the raw materials that you need, to create, uh, you know, more neurotransmitters and for bodily, um, for how your body functions. And then um, when you start your protein, you're not going to be hungry all day long. Whereas if you had a bowl of sugar-coated cereal with some low-fat milk or, um, you know, a sugar-coated Danish and some coffee with sugar, most people will get hungry within half an hour to an hour, and then you're snacking all day long. So in terms of mood, it balances your blood sugar, it stabilizes the mood, and it also helps with weight loss if that, that's one of your issues. Uh, we're going to go to a break in a moment. I want to talk about the relationship between sleep and weight loss because there's some very interesting research that's been discovered about that. And when we mm-hmm. are not sleeping well, we are actually um, making ourselves fatter. Um, and, we'll, and we'll talk about that after the break because I'm all over the place here. The, the, the protein-based breakfast is, is critical. So have the eggs, have, have a protein source, maybe even just a grilled piece of chicken or salmon or, some, or tofu in the morning to get yes. started. Yeah. 
And there are recipes in your book, Happy Foods, over 100 mood-boosting recipes. We uh, will talk more about the relationship with sleep when we come back. But um, prior to uh, dancing off to the break together and having our conversation about about um, sauerkraut, <laughs> um, what is what are other foods that we can just really quick maybe take a handful of that will start to improve our mood. If we're feeling low, what should we grab besides the donut, which makes us feel good? Right. What, should we, what should we really be reaching for very quickly? And then we'll jump off to the break and come back. Okay. Well, for your listeners who are, who have a, a affinity for sugar, I would say instead of a candy bar, reach for your very high end chocolate. That's at least 70% cacao and little sugar. And then for others who are more broad minded, uh, half an avocado is great. An avocado, the fats, the, the omega three, and it's very satisfying. You make a very good point. And for some people, they like to combine their chocolate with their avocado, but that's probably that's, another conversation. <laughs> that's good too. <laughs> that's a different palate. Um, we're we're going to just step out for a few uh, for a minute or two. And when we come back, we'll carry on the conversation with author and nutritionist and and culinary specialist Karen Wang Diggs. To learn more, please visit KarenIsCooking.com. On Twitter, the handle is Karen is Cooking. And on Facebook, guess what? Karen is Cooking. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Harvest more happiness by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Love to read? Looking to harvest your happiness? Then look no further. Lisa Cypress Kamen is an author of three amazing books that will assist in taking your well-being and self-mastery to the next level. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life offers breakthrough strategies for creating your own personal happiness revolution. Perspectives on addiction, an integrated journey to wellness is an overview of the recovery process from a multi-stepped perspective and holistic approach of substance abuse and lifestyle management. Through her third book, Reintegration Strategies for Depression, Anxiety, Anger, Grief, and Post-Traumatic Stress, offers an own nonsense approach to dealing with post-combat civilian life reintegration issues for veterans and their families. You'll find these books online at Amazon.com and HarvestingHappiness.com. Mindful meditative moments are free and relaxing on-the-spot mini staycation journeys designed to calm the mind and soothe the body from the comfort of wherever you are. No reservations or travel required. Check out the playlists on HarvestingHappiness.com and Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes and SoundCloud. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen, the show dedicated to promoting happiness from the inside out by thriving with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. So let's get back to the show and your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast because we're talking about happy foods with the author of the new book, Karen Wang Diggs, who has collected 
over 100 mood-boosting recipes, and she is going to share with us uh, the value of nutrition as it relates also to sleep. Not only are we talking about eating for happiness, but eating for solid restorative sleep, which most of us are deprived of. So Karen, take it away. Okay. So um, sleep. Sleep. (laughs) One of the most most important things that anyone can do if they want to, uh, you know, be ageless and healthy. Um, Sleeping, as I mentioned in my book, is the fountain of youth. So don't look for it in some exotic place. You don't have to travel around the world. Just head for your bedroom and your bed. That is the fountain of youth. And um, unfortunately, us moderns sleep a lot less than our ancestors. You know, um, since the the dawn of electric lights, we've gotten less and less sleep. And now with the Internet and everything else, people are just not getting the sleep that's required. And as human beings, we haven't evolved, you know, in a few generations to deal with um, the lack of sleep. So ideally in the winter, when we have short days, we should be sleeping anywhere between 9 to 12 hours. In the summer, when there's more sun, then we can get away with maybe 8. But actually, 8 should be the minimum with which we need to operate optimally. And sleep deprivation is a huge issue, not only for safety. You know, many accidents happen uh, due to sleep deprivation. But in terms of our own health and happiness, so on the health front, um, it actually makes us eat more when you're not sleeping enough. It actually drives two hormones, one called leptin and um, one called ghrelin. And it actually uh, imbalances these hormones. So ghrelin um, is the hormone that will signal you to eat when you haven't eaten enough. And leptin is the hormone that will tell you to stop eating. You've eaten enough. However, when you don't uh, have enough sleep, both of the signaling from these hormones um, are not recognized by the body. So we tend to eat more than we're supposed to. And then we have the hunger signal all the time. So, and then um, the, the bad part about it too is that when you don't sleep enough, the hunger signal is asking you to eat carbohydrates. Yes, this is the go-to food, right? When we're feeling sleep deprived and we know we need to endure, you know, go a few more hours. This is what most of us gravitate towards. And right. uh, yeah. salt or, or, or sugar and the carbos, yes. fried food, a lot of oil. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, you know, when people get really tired and, and frustrated or stressed, they default to, I'm just going to have a big bowl of pasta or, you know, get on the phone and order that pizza delivery. So that's the signal that we get. But when you're, when you've slept well, your body will um, listen to the signals of your hormones a lot better. So when you've had a meal, the leptin will kick in, and then you will, you, your body will actually be in tune with that, and then you will feel more satisfied after a meal. So sleep is huge. And then, you know, on the happiness fronts, um, neurotransmitters that need to be generated at night, as we've mentioned before, um, serotonin is produced in the dark when we're sleeping. And as you know, serotonin is a huge, huge natural chemical that helps to stabilize our mood. So sleeping, um, a lot of people think that they can do without it because we have so many things to do. But in fact, it's one of the most important things we should be doing um, 
you know, for, for our own well-being. And this is to not only uh, regulate mood, it's also to help us maintain healthy body weight, yes. to mm-hmm. restore and process the activities and events that have happened in the day prior. There's a lot of work, like as you mentioned, in the, in the segment prior that gets done when we sleep. Yes, you know, absolutely, the, the, yep. The emotional processing. Um, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, foods that in happy foods that induce good sleep. Okay, um, so you know, in the book overall, I advocate that people look at their carbohydrate intake because we all eat um, too much carbohydrate in the form of sugar or starchy foods or alcohol. However, um, in terms of eating carbohydrate with protein, if you want good sound sleep. I would say, um, well, first of all, you know, look at going gluten-free. And then so we're looking at grains like quinoa or wild rice. Uh, during the course of the day, if you want to sleep optimally, then save your carbohydrate intake until the evening meal. So let's say you're having a piece of chicken. Have that piece of chicken with a, you know, maybe half a cup serving of cooked quinoa. And the combination of the carbohydrate and the protein will help you to make serotonin optimally at night when you're sleeping. So your choice then, when to have the carbohydrate at night. Um, Other foods that will help you sleep is, um, well, actually, I should say, other foods that will not foster uh, restful sleep is, again, the sugar. So, you know, many people tend to have a little piece of dessert after the evening meal, and some people even have a sweet tooth and they want to have something sweet before going to bed. That's probably the worst thing you can do for sleep because um, the sugar is going to send you into a blood sugar swing. And a lot of people wake up in the middle of the night. They might even wake up uh, with a nightmare because the sugar uh, is causing them to have sort of an, a crash in the middle of the night and it causes them to wake up. So stay away from anything sugary. Um, try if you can not to have anything three hours before going to bed. And, um, if you are someone who needs a little something before going to bed, I actually have a nice, um, tonic that you can make at night with coconut milk. So heat up, um, a little bit of coconut milk, some turmeric and ginger, and Ooh. that can be used before going to bed. I, I think I call that my golden tonic in the, in the book. So the recipe is super simple. You have the good, uh, you know, oils from the coconut is dairy-free. The turmeric is a powerful antioxidant, um, and it works synergistically with the ginger to help inflammation. So it's also very calming. And we probably should add the obvious, which is uh, caffeine, that we want to eliminate (laughs) caffeine from our diets as much as possible. Yes, absolutely. You know, I I was just sort of listening to you and and thinking, oh, the tonic sounds amazing. But the other thing we can do is just cut out... um, the bean, as you call it. Yes, for most people, you know, if they have a cup of coffee um, after midday, the caffeine can stay in your system anywhere from six to eight hours. So, you know, if you're not sleeping at night, it could be the coffee that you had at three o'clock in the afternoon. Which is when we crave it. You know, we're, yes. our, we're, we're crashing in the late afternoon because right. most of us are not rested enough. So we crave the cup of coffee and a cookie or a biscotti or a muffin, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And right. then we, we, we've triple uh, uh, 
whacked ourselves with the caffeine, <laughs> the sugar, and the flour. <laughs> yes, I know. Yes, and that that pretty much explains the behavior of a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, the the average person. Um, yes. Let's. Uh, I, I, we're we're running out of time, and there are a couple areas I want to hit. And one is your avocation of using butter and coconut oil because this yes. flies in the face of many um, mainstream um, nutrition or dietary recommendations. Yes, yes. Um, and But you know what? I think there actually is a, uh, a flip to that now coming because I, I see a lot of literature being put out by, uh, by researchers and doctors. And I think on the cover of Time magazine last year, I forgot which month, they actually showed a um, butter on the cover. <laughs> oh, Yes, so butter is making a comeback, but in addition to butter, other healthy fats such as coconut milk uh, or coconut oil and, you know, healthy fats coming from animals that are sustainably raised is also good. And of course, you know, we mentioned before avocado and extra virgin olive oil. So the importance of good healthy fats is that on a cellular level, on a molecular level, it helps cell-to-cell communication. And for the brain, you know, our brain is over 60% fat, and most of it is saturated fat. And so our body actually operates very well on good healthy fats. And when cells don't communicate, that's when disease starts to happen. So our cellular membrane is actually made out of lipids, um, basically another term for, for fat molecules that are very tiny. And these lipids operate best when it's mainly saturated. Again, the saturated fat helps the cell membrane to be permeable so that toxins can be released and then nutrients can, be, um, can enter into the cell so that it stays healthy. Fascinating. And also the relationship between what goes on in our gut Mm -hmm. and our psychological and emotional well-being, there is a lot of research that is being done on this. And um, you are really, you know, in the thick of, of, I think, being on, yes. uh, on the frontier of this work because we, we know it's true. We know when we clean up our act with how we feed ourselves, how we nourish ourselves beyond mm-hmm. feeding, really nourishing ourselves, we see an impre- improvement in, in our affect. So this is, this is very, very important work. And finally, before we go, I want to just touch upon um, the connection between thyroid and adrenal function. And we don't have yes. much time. So just yeah. um, quickly let our listeners know about the relationship of feeling logy to mm-hmm. uh, this other area of the body. Real quick, because I'm going to get cut off by my producer. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sure. So the, um, the thyroid and the adrenals, they work in tandem. They work together. And I know a lot of people are only on thyroid medication, but they're not addressing their stress. And one of the major buffers against stress is through your diet. So for your listeners who are on thyroid medication or who know that they have thyroid issues, they need to really look at their diet. You know, that's like sort of the the front line against buffering stress. And then they might want to additionally look at herbs and other uh, lifestyle choices that will buffer the stress because your adrenals are always pumping up hormones that react to stress and it works in tandem with the thyroid. So the two, they need to be together. Beautifully, beautifully and quickly described. And I thank you for that. (laughs) The book, once again, by Karen Wang Diggs is Happy Foods, Over 100 Mood Boosting Recipes. To connect with her, please visit karenascooking.com. 
on Facebook, Karen is Cooking, and on Twitter, that handle is at Karen is Cooking. You have been a delicious delight to have on the show. Thank you so much for sharing your wealth of knowledge with us, the listeners, and um, wonderful book, by the way. Thank you, Lisa. I, I'm happy to be on, and I feel really honored. Well, likewise, and I'm honored to have you. So thank you. Have a great day. Um, Here come the tunes. We'll be right back, and then we'll bring on our next guest. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Harvest more happiness by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Remember what it feels like to receive a gift? We all know nothing gives happiness like a present, so you should unwrap yours at HarvestingHappiness.com and sign up to receive your free ebook, Got Happiness Now, that offers simple, user-friendly ways to get greater happiness in your world each and every day. That's HarvestingHappiness.com. Lisa Cypress Kamen has built an impressive global lifestyle management consulting company offering applied positive psychology, mindfulness, and integrated well-being coaching. Her services including addiction and trauma recovery support as well as life crisis triage are available worldwide through phone, video, and on-site. In addition, Lisa delivers workshops, lectures, and trainings to corporations and institutions and is a frequent guest expert on many prominent radio and TV shows. Connect with us at Harvesting Happiness for more information. Harvesting Happiness for Heroes is a 501c3 nonprofit corporation offering innovative and integrated stigma-free combat recovery services to veterans and their loved ones with programming that focuses on the transformation of post-traumatic stress into post-traumatic growth using scientifically proven positive psychology coaching tools and strategies that increase self-mastery, self-awareness, and self-esteem to help heal the invisible wounds of war. To make a tax-free charitable contribution or to learn more, please visit visit hh4heroes.org. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen, the show dedicated to promoting happiness from the inside out by thriving with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. So let's get back to the show and your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about eating our way to happiness with healthy foods and creative cooking. My next guest is Kenji Lopez-Alt. He is a food science writer and the managing culinary director of SeriousEats.com, author of The Food Lab, Better Cooking Through Science, which is a New York Times bestseller, and the James Beard Award-nominated column, The Food Lab. His work has appeared in numerous publications, including the Wall Street Journal, the Boston Globe, Wired Magazine, and Men's Health. He lives in San Francisco with his wife, Adriana, and two dogs, Hamon and Shabu. His first book, The Food Lab, Better Cooking Through Science, is available wherever books are sold. At nearly 1,000 pages with 300 foolproof recipes, it's a grand tour of the science of cooking explored through popular American dishes Illustrated in full color with thousands of photographs, charts, graphs, and do-at-home experiments. Ooh, I like it. Welcome, Kenji. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
Oh, it's a pleasure. I am a, I'm a foodie. My family's a foodie. We like to cook. We like to eat. We like to hang out and talk about food. Excellent. Excellent. So, so let's talk about the mythology of some of the cooking techniques that are out there. There are a lot okay. of myths, right? There are a lot of myths, yeah. Um, I don't know. Where do you want to start? I mean, I guess we're, we're in Texas right now, so we can start with uh, some of the myths around steaks because there are oh. a lot of those. Yes. Let's go for it. <laughs> All right. I mean, you, you hear a lot of things. Um, one, one of the big ones is you'll hear is that um, is that you should only flip your steaks once while you're cooking them. Um, and I think the idea for this comes from um, comes from the idea that people think by flipping it multiple times, uh, you don't get as nice a sear on it, um, or maybe the inside doesn't cook as evenly. Um, but it's actually it's actually quite the opposite. Um, and and you can prove this uh, both experimentally just by doing it yourself. You know, take two steaks, put them on the grill. One of them just flip once while you're cooking, and the other one flip every 30 seconds or so. Um, and what you'll find is that the one that you're flipping um, frequently will actually uh, cook more evenly. That is, there's going to be less of that overcooked meat around the exterior. Um, it's going to cook more evenly than the ones that you flip only once. And it's also going to cook about 30% faster. Um, and on top of that, it's also going to develop a really nice crust uh, at just about the same rate. So it's actually better to flip your steaks multiple times. Although, you know, really in the end, I think the one rule about, about going to a, a backyard barbecue or backyard cookout is that you don't want to mess with the person uh, who's, who's tending the fire because <laughs> I, I think they're, they're the ones in charge. So if they want to just flip it once, don't argue with them. Um, you know, what, the, other, the other big one with steak is that people will always tell you, uh, and, and a lot of big chefs will tell you this too, is that you want to take your steak out of the fridge early and let it sit at, uh, let it come to room temperature before cooking. Um, and, you know, there, there's, there's a couple problems there. Um, the, the first one is that if, you have, if you've got a nice thick steak, and, I, you know, generally if I'm going to eat steak, which doesn't happen that often, but if I'm going to eat a steak, I want it to be a nice thick one. Um, you know, if, if you have a nice thick steak, it takes a very, very long time for it to actually come to room temperature. You can leave a steak out. Uh, from the fridge on your counter, you can leave it out on the counter for about two hours, um, and it, internal its internal temperature will only rise by about ten degrees or so, which is not very much. Um, and and the 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 more important part to consider is that um, when you're searing a steak, um, the th the thing that helps a, st a steak sear fastest, um, the the problem with searing a steak is not really the is beginning is not really the starting temperature. It's actually the uh, the starting moisture. So it's not about how how warm the surface of the steak is. It's about how dry the surface of the steak is. Um, to, to put it in perspective, um, even if you start with a steak that uh, is coming straight out of a fridge at 32 degrees, say the, the fridge at the coldest setting, 32 degrees, um, the amount of energy it takes to bring that steak from 32 degrees up to 212 degrees um, Fahrenheit, which is when the water on the surface is going to start uh, evaporating, the amount of energy it takes to bring it up from 32 all the way to 212, um, it takes... It takes 50 times more energy to then uh, evaporate the moisture from the surface of that steak. And you can't really get any browning done until that moisture is evaporating. So uh, honestly, the starting temperature of the steak is almost negligible. It really has to do more with the starting, um, the surface moisture of the steak. So if you want to have the best steak ever, one that browns really efficiently so that you get a nice dark crust on it without overcooking the inside, um, you want to make sure it's dry. So if, if, you're, if you're starting with a fresh steak and you want to cook it right away, that means patting it dry with paper towels really well. Um, or better yet, if you, have, if, you, if you do a little bit of planning, uh, you can take that steak, put it on a rack, uh, and sit, set it in your fridge uncovered uh, overnight or even up to a couple nights um, so that the surface dries out. And then when you, when you have that steak, it's going to brown really fast, and it's going to be the best steak you've ever cooked. I, you know, I, I didn't know that about the moisture, but I did know about the multiple flipping. I am a multiple mm -hmm. flipper because I did oh, run that experiment myself. And oh, great. Yeah. I, I, I discovered that. Let's talk about eggs because this is another popular product that many of us um, uh, 
keep in our fridge for way past that expiration date. What's what's, what's the story? What's the story with eggs and, and expiration dates? Well, you know, expiration dates, um, and, and this is this is true across the board for food. You know, expiration dates are always an approximation um, because it's it's impossible for food manufacturers to know. Um, a, well, you know, a, eggs are not all identical. They come from they come from different hens. They come from different parts of the country. They come from different hen houses. They're shipped in different ways. Um, so the eggs are not all identical. So it's really hard to give an exact expiration date across the board. And more importantly, you know, the eggs are treated differently in, in transport. So some of them might be kept a little bit colder. So one of one of the um, supermarkets might have their fridge set a couple degrees colder. And then once you bring it home, you know, who knows how you're treating it? Maybe it takes you an extra hour to bring them home or an extra two hours, or maybe your fridge is colder than your neighbor's. So expiration dates are always really just a, um, just an approximation. Um, um, you know, they, they should really say best used by instead of, instead of expiration, um, I think. But, you know, the, the way you tell your eggs, um, the freshness of your eggs, um, the easiest way I know is to just put them into a cup of water. Um, and uh, so, you know, as eggs, you know, the, the eggshell seems like it's impermeable, but it actually, uh, it actually allows moisture to escape from the inside. So as eggs get older, uh, they do lose moisture at a pretty regular rate. Um, and what that means is that the uh, the air bubble that's in the, the that air pocket that's in the fat end of the egg, you know, when you boil an egg and you get that little dimple in the fat end, that's yes. caused by an air, that's caused by an air pocket in the fat end of the, uh, of the egg. And as the egg gets older, that air pocket gets bigger and bigger because the moisture leaves the egg. So when you put an egg in a glass of water, um, if it sinks to the very bottom uh, and lies flat on its side, um, that means that it's pretty fresh. Um, if it starts to stand up or even stand perfectly, you know, stand straight up with the uh, fat end on the top, that means that that air bubble has gotten pretty big and uh, and your and your egg is uh, starting to get a little bit old. If it, if it completely floats to the top, then then you probably want to get rid of it. Maybe just throw it at your neighbor or something like that. But you uh, you don't <laughs> want to use an egg that floats. Got it. I, you know, I did not know that. I, I, we we buy our eggs from our farmers market, right? And mm-hmm. they're not they are not date stamped. So I always say to the to the farmer, like, how long will these last? And he says, Oh, they're going to last you a month. And I'm like, A month? And he goes, Yeah, don't worry about it. And <laughs> oh, I'm eggs, like, Eggs last a very long time. They do. You know, even even eggs that you buy at the supermarket, um, you'll find. So the, um, the 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 expiration date that's stamped on the egg um, is typically it can be anywhere up to well, anywhere from zero to up to thirty days after the egg was placed in that carton. So that's already one month. And the eggs are actually allowed to be placed in that carton one month after they're up to thirty days after they're laid. Um, so even even according to the the loosest government standards, eggs can be up to sixty days old and they're still fine. In reality. You know, eggs are going to last. Will probably last up to three or four months in your fridge as long as you keep them cold. Wow, I you know this this is this is good information. What about butter? You know, like some people keep their butter on the counter, and some people mm-hmm. keep their butter in the fridge. What's the deal with that? Well, you know, keeping keeping butter on the counter is a good idea if you if you if you go through it regularly and you, and you say you have your toast or your English muffin every morning and you and you want to take that butter and you want it to be spreadable. Um, butter on the counter, you know, butter does go does go bad though. Um, a couple things can happen to it. It can go it can go rancid, um, which is uh, something that attacks um, the the fat molecules itself. It'll go rancid in the same way that uh, oil that's left uh, exposed to light or or too close to your stove will go rancid, and that kind of creates a sort of fishy smell to it. Um, butter also has a good amount of water in it um, uh, and protein. And, and both of those things can lead to uh, bacteria, um, bacteria or mold. So, so butter, butter, can, uh, butter can go bad, although, you know, it's, it's quite, quite high in fat. And particularly if it's salted butter, um, salted butter uh, is a pretty inhospitable environment for bacteria. So it'll, it'll last probably um, at least a week or so at room temperature uh, left out on the counter. But, you know, if you are the type of person who uses it every day, then 
then you know who you are, and it's probably okay to leave it out on the counter. If, if you only want, if you if you basically only use your butter for baking or things like that, then you probably want to keep it in the fridge. Got it. There is nothing like good soft butter though. When you're buttering your toast or your veggies, oh, yeah. oh it's good, <laughs> it's good. But you know, many of us are scared to leave it out on the counter. So yeah. that, that's good to know. That's well, really like, good. You know what I like to use um, at home is one of those um, those inverted bells with the with the water seals. You know, I, those those will keep your butter fresher much longer than um, than a butter dish with a with a cover will because the butter dish allows a, a lot more air circulation. Um, you, uh, you know the ones I'm talking about, right? Yes. Kind of yes. Soften the butter, put it in the bell, and put it upside down. Those, those work a lot better than a regular butter dish. What What are some other myth busting tips? <laughs> other myth busting tips? Uh, well, let's see. You know, one one thing I think people do uh, quite often is um, they cook their pasta in way too much water. Um, and, and this is something that you, um, you will hear all the time from, um, uh, Italian chefs or other, other chefs on TV, um, that you should use a huge volume of pasta to cook your water, uh, uh, water to cook your pasta. I think most people will say you want about a gallon of water to cook a pound of pasta in. Um, this is, this is true if, uh, if you're cooking fresh pasta, uh, you do want to do this. Or if you're cooking a very, very sort of high end brand of pasta that has been naturally dried and extruded, uh, using traditional methods, um, you know, one of the more one of the very expensive high end import brands. You, then you you do want to use a large volume of pasta because they can uh, they can expel uh, a lot of starch that will get them sticky. But most of the pasta you're buying in the supermarket, um, you know, your Berea or and any of your sort of standard American supermarket pastas, um, they don't need to be cooked in a lot of water because they don't actually release that much starch. Um, you can cook a, you can cook um, pasta basically in just enough water to cover it. Um, and the other thing is that the water doesn't even really need to be boiling to begin with. You can put your pasta covered in tap water put it on the stove uh, and bring it to a boil. And in blind taste tests, um, it comes out exactly the same as if you boiled it in a huge volume of water. Um, th- there are other advantages, actually, to cooking in a small volume of water. You know, I, I come from California, where right now we're in the middle of a drought. Um, and so for me, using water is actually quite expensive because they, they charge you for your, they charge you quite a bit for your water these days. Um, so, so it's good. It saves me money. Um, it also saves energy because you don't have to bring a huge pot of water to a boil. Um, also time, obviously. Um, and, and more importantly, it, it'll make your, it'll make your pasta taste better because, um, you, you know, you've heard the trick of taking, uh, some of the, some of the pasta water and adding it to the sauce, um, while you're tossing the sauce with the pasta. Um, and, and the idea there is that the starch, uh, that's released by the pasta as it's cooking, um, it gets into that pasta water. And then when you add that starch to the sauce, um, it's going to thicken it up. Um, in the same way that like a roux will thicken up a gravy, um, uh, the starchy pasta water is going to help thicken up that sauce and get it to cling to the uh, cling to the pasta better. Um, and so when you use a smaller volume of water, you actually get a much higher concentration of those uh, extracted ah. starches. And so it gets, it's going to make the sauce uh, cling to the pasta even better. So when I cook pasta, small volume of water, um, I, and, it, and it works just much, much better in almost every respect. We're going to need to go to a break. And when we come back, I would love to talk a little bit about using sound as a guideline for proper cutting and cooking techniques because I had not Great. heard of this. This is this is one of your other tips that uh, is available in your book, The Food Lab, Better Cooking Through Science. Um, to learn more about Kenji's work, please visit The Food Lab Recipes on Facebook. On Twitter, Kenji can be found at The Food Lab and the website is Kenji Lopez Alt. Here come those tunes. We'll be right back to continue the conversation. 
We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Harvest more happiness by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Lisa Cypress-Kamen, author of Got Happiness Now, is also a prestigious TEDx presenter. Her talks, The Mysteries of Fear and the Inversion Theory of Joy, can be found online at TED.com and on the Harvesting Happiness YouTube channel. Be a part of the grateful good. Grateful Nation brings together patients, families, friends, and staff of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center to support the quality care and groundbreaking research at the Medical Center. Through new and traditional media, members of Grateful Nation share experiences, thank our caregivers and researchers, participate in sweepstakes, and gather to sponsor and host events and much more. Being grateful inspires others to be grateful as well. Isn't it time we jumpstart some perpetual gratitude? Visit Grateful Nation online to find out more at www.gratefulnation.org. Have a grateful day. Check out the critically acclaimed documentary film, H Factor, Where is Your Heart? An insightful visual journey from Lisa Cypress-Kamen, showing that every person possesses the means to be happy. Follow Lisa and her nine-year-old daughter, Kayla, as they travel the world on the hunt for the universal keys to human happiness. Their question, what makes you happy? Discover the origins of human happiness, where to find it, create it, and keep it. Find it in our shop at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen, the show dedicated to promoting happiness from the inside out by thriving with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. So let's get back to the show and your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? It's free, it's kind, it's legal, it's available 24-7, and we're talking about eating our way to happiness with healthy foods and creative cooking. And with me now is Kenji Lopez-Alt. He is the Managing Culinary Director of SeriousEats.com and the author of The Food Lab, Better Cooking Through Science, which happens to be a New York Times bestseller. And he also um, writes... The column, which has been nominated for a James Beard Award, the Food Lab. So, Kenji, you are giving us all kinds of myth busters about the foods and cooking techniques prior to our break. And now I want to talk about another one, and that is the use of sound. Great. Yeah. Sound is, sound is very important in the kitchen. Talk about it. I mean, I know about like melons, shaking your, you know, melons at the grocery store and, you know, this sort of thing, but, and, or, or tapping on the melons, you know. Right, right, right. I don't think you want to shake your melons at the grocery store. No. Well, I don't uh, want to shake my melons at the grocery store, but the melons <laughs> that I might be purchasing, I, I <laughs> you know what I'm saying. Anyway, I do. <laughs> talk about sound. Um, you know, th- this is something that I learned very early on in my cooking career. Um, one, one of my very first cooking jobs, um, I was working at a restaurant in Boston, um, and on the first day of that job, um, they, uh, I, you know, I was I was a line cook uh, in, on the Garde Manger station, and one of my jobs was to uh, slice chives. 
um, and I had to slice chives for every person on the line. So it was, a, you know, a lot of chives I had to go through. Um, and I was there slicing chives probably for about half an hour. Um, and then the chef's, chef walks by me, um, behind me, didn't even look down at my cutting board. But um, just as she's walking by, she says, Kenji, you're cutting those wrong. And um, she didn't even have to look. She just knew just by hearing the sound that the chives were making as I was cutting them. And then she looked at them, and, she, and sure enough, all the chives were kind of crushed instead of sliced. And so she um, she dumped all the chives into the garbage and, and showed me how to properly slice them, and I had, and I had to start over again. Um, the, the, the thing I was doing wrong um, was that, you know, when, when you're trying to cut something very delicate, like, say, scallions or herbs um, or, or chives like that, um, if you have a sharp knife, no matter how sharp your knife is, um, if you don't give it enough lateral motion, um, you end up kind of crushing instead of slicing. Um, so, so if you go really straight up and down um, on a scallion, and you can try this at home with a sharp knife, just go straight up and down on a scallion, it will cut through, um, but you'll end up kind of rupturing a lot of, the, um, a lot of those scallion cells. Um, and this can, make the, this can make the scallion smell really, uh, really pungent and really strong, which is not really what you want. You want it to have a more sort of delicate and sweet aroma. Um, you don't want to crush those. You don't want to crush those cells. You want to slice through them cleanly. Um, so by using a lot of horizontal motion, um, you know, really slicing and pulling your knife backwards slowly across the uh, across the scallions or chives, um, you end up sli- uh, crushing fewer cells. You end up with much nicer looking slices, um, and they actually taste better as well. Um, so that, you know that that's one work, one case where if you, if you hear your you know if you hear that sort of like sound going on, yeah, yeah. Um, it means you're probably uh, you're probably not slicing with enough lateral motion because you really want it to see, sound more like, um, you know, like a like a ninja's razor blade uh, to the throat, something a like crisp that. cut. <laughs> like we're like you're you're actually hearing the blade hit the wood or the or the the plastic. Yeah, yeah. No, I get um, it. I get it. And I, you know, I, I, I'm admitting that I am a a, a sloppy chopper. Clearly. <laughs> Well, wow. Okay. <laughs> I know. I, you know, my, my kids forgive me. My family forgives me. You know, it's like the, the food looks good, but I do notice the difference when I don't get a, a crisp cut. And I mm-hmm. attributed to that, to the, to the knives, not mm-hmm. the technique that well, I didn't have sharp Part knives. of it is the knives. Yeah. Part of it, you definitely do want a sharp knife to start with. Um, but even with the world's sharpest knife, if you don't, if you don't uh, pull across uh, the board and just go straight up and down, um, you end up with a, a crushed uh, you'll, you'll end up with crushed vegetables instead of instead of sliced vegetables. Um, the the other big place where 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 sound comes in into play every day um, when you're cooking is uh, is when you're sautéing or searing things. Um, and you know there's there's a big difference in the sound between something that is sizzling and fat, something you know something that um, is really searing and browning uh, versus something that is sort of steaming. Um, so for instance, if you're talking about like say um, a pork chop or like a, a chicken breast or something like that. Um, you, and you want to get some nice brown color on the outside. If you put it into your pan and you hear and you hear it kind of uh, uh, either if you, well, if you hear no sound at all, that's bad. But if you hear it kind of steaming and kind of sputtering instead of like a really sharp crackle, um, you know that your pan is probably not hot enough, and you, you want to take it out right away and wait for your pan to heat up a little bit more. Um, and, and similarly, say similarly, say you're um, sautéing some vegetables uh, to begin, like a soup or a stew or something like that. You've got you know carrots, onions, and celery. Uh, inside your Dutch oven, you're going to make a stew. You're going to make a stew, um, and you're cooking them in oil. Um, at the beginning, you're going to you're going to hear like a very gentle sort of sputtering and sizzling noise. Um, as the moisture in those vegetables starts to dry out, um, it's the the sound is going to get sharper and sharper and sharper until eventually it's going to be a really sharp sizzle, and that's the sound of frying. 
Um, and you know, and, and, and that's a really great audio cue, you know that at the point that it starts becoming that really sharp sizzle, um, that that's when the vegetables are going to actually start browning, because vegetables can't really brown until most of their moisture has been, uh, their surface moisture has been driven off. Um, so, you know, it's, 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 really, it's really good, because if, if you're over working on some other part of the kitchen, um, and you're very sort of keeping a lazy eye on the pot, you can use your ears and, and, and hear at what stage the vegetables are at. So once, the, once they start getting the sharp sizzle, you know, okay, my vegetables are starting to brown, and then you can decide, you know, do I want my vegetables to brown, or, or should I maybe go over there right now um, and start adding my other ingredients or adding my liquid to that pot? So this really talks about how we use our senses. You know, we know that the food and the senses is, of course, very integrated. But Mm -hmm. in terms of preparing food, um, we really need to be using all of our senses. It's not just about, you know, sitting there stirring the stuff. It's really about paying attention in ways that we wouldn't normally think to pay attention, you know, like with our eyes or our nose. The sound is great. Great, great tip. Any others? Well, you know, I mean, talking about talking about your senses, um, I think I, I think one just gen- tip and tip in general is to really make sure that you do rely on your senses. And, and, and you know, a good a good recipe will tell you um, what you should be looking for, or what you should be what you should be hearing for, because, you know, an- anybody who cooks with just a timer, um, they're probably not going to end up with great results, because no matter how accurate your timer is, and no matter how well the recipe was written, um, there's just so many variables. And you know, your stove is not exactly the same as the stove the recipe was tested on. Your pan's not exactly the same. Your onion is probably not the same as the onion that was that it was tested with. So no matter how well a recipe is tested, um, you're never going to nail down an exact amount of time uh, that something is going to take to cook. So it's 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 generally a pretty poor idea to to, to rely on a timer to say when like your onions are sautéed enough. Um, you really do want to to use all your senses and, and use your nose, use your ears, uh, use your eyes, and just pay, just pay attention to everything as it's going on and. And, and the more you do this, the more sort of second nature it becomes. Um, so, you know, the first few times you're sauteing an onion, you might have to pay very careful attention with all of your senses. Um, later on, as you get as you get more and more used to it, um, you, you'll you'll start to rely maybe whichever one's most comfortable for you. For me, it's it's really my ears that I rely most on uh, for things like that. But you might find that your your eyes are more reliable. But but it'll become second nature as, as you practice it more. I'm going to practice the ear technique because it's not something, I mean, unless it's blaring, you know, like you, uh, you right. really hear something, you know, sort of going off the rails in the kitchen with the snap, crackle, pop. But right. the, or the, the, or subtlety, the smoke alarm. Yes, or the smoke alarm. But it's the, 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 more, the more subtle aspect of this is what I, what I think you're talking mm-hmm. about. You mentioned about recipes. And I want to uh-huh. chat a little bit about your philosophy for recipe development because you mm-hmm. are a creative guy, right? You know, mm-hmm. you've uh, created a lot of recipes that are in your book. Um, what goes into developing a recipe? Um, well, it's, it's, it's a lot of things. You know, mo- most of the recipes, particularly the ones in the book, um, the, the recipes in the book um, are, are all sort of classic American dishes. So there, there's nothing hugely surprising about what's, what's in there. Um, um, and, and, you know, and, and that was a very conscious decision because, I, you know, I see the recipes almost as sort of like the, the anchor point, the, the, the thing that you can connect to so that then you, it, help, it helps you understand the science around it a little bit better. Um, but, you know, when, when I'm developing a recipe, say I'm, say I'm looking for a recipe for meatloaf, um, you know, for me, first of all, the, the recipe I'm writing, there has to be a reason for it to exist. It can't just be um, an, another recipe just like all the other ones out there because there's already en- there's already tons of meatloaf recipes out there, you know. Um, so, but but for me, a recipe, recipe development always begins with always begins with research, um, um, and that means you know, in the case of meatloaf, it would mean all right, look at look looking at the history of, of meatloaf, um, and more importantly, looking at what position meatloaf um, holds in the in the minds uh, and the palates of people across the country. Um, so often that'll mean you know going to social media and asking people, 
you know, what does meatloaf mean to you? Or what's your favorite kind of meatloaf? Or did you eat meatloaf growing up? Um, because when I'm, you know, when I'm developing a recipe for meatloaf, I, 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 I don't take this sort of uh, modern chef approach where I'm sort of deconstructing and reconstructing and reinterpreting <laughs> it. Um, I want, I want my, the meatloaf, you know, and, and I think most of my readers want, if they follow a recipe for meatloaf, they want to come out with something that they instantly recognize as meatloaf. And it hits all those right sort of meatloaf, you know, it, it has a very high level of meatloafiness in that. Um, it, it, and, and, and so that means that you have to sort of respect the dish's orange origins, um, respect its history, respect its place within um, the, uh, the, the cultural palate. Um, um, and, and, and from there, that's when you try and sort of start thinking, okay, well, where, you know, where can this recipe sort of be improved or maybe where, where can I um, optimize it? Uh, or, or sometimes it's how can I make it more foolproof um, um, or how can I make it more efficient? Um, and, and, and that's, that's sort of what I do. I, I, I come up with a sort of base set of parameters, like a, a great meatloaf must have these key qualities to it. Um, now, how do I optimize those things? Um, and, and that, and, 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 and what problems do people have with meatloaf? And that, that's really sort of where my testing process and recipe development process comes from. So, it, really, it's about meaning, you know, the meatloaf with meaning. You're yeah, doing. yeah. I mean, you know, meatloaf, meatloaf does have meaning to a lot of people. It's oh, my gosh. Yeah, comfort. <laughs> Come on. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, and you're not going to be comforted by, uh, by you, you, you might be intrigued or challenged by a very chef-y uh, version of a meatloaf, but you're probably not going to be comforted by it. You want, you, want, you know, the, the whole book and, and most of what I do is about home cooking, and it's, a, it's about making sure that, you know, if you if you make this recipe, you're going to you're going to be happy with it. Um, and, and, you know, that's sort of, that's sort of my my philosophy on, 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 on healthy eating as well. You know, a lot a lot of people ask me, um, you know, the types of recipes you write, how like how are you not a blimp? Um, and, and the real answer is that, these I, you know, I, I write about macaroni and cheese and I write about meatloaf, but it's not like I eat those every day. Um, my, my real philosophy is that, you know, if for the one time a year or maybe two times a year that I'm going to make macaroni and cheese or meatloaf, um, I want that to be the best macaroni and cheese and the best meatloaf I can possibly make so that it's going to keep me satisfied. Um, but, but, you know, they, they, honestly, most of the recipes in, in the book are not recipes that you, that you should make every day or, or will even want to make every day. Um, they're, they're things that are, that are going to be, you know, sort of more um, celebratory things and more, and more special treats. The book is The Food Lab, Better Home Cooking Through Science, which is a New York Times bestseller, and it's available wherever books are sold. Kenji, we've run out of time, and I want to give our listeners your contact information. The website is KenjiLopezAlt.com. On Twitter, you can be found at The Food Lab, and on Facebook, The Food Lab Recipes. And once again, I want to thank you, Kenji Lopez-Alt, for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. And here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. Happiness simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Karen Wang Diggs and Kenji Lopez-Alt, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, the kindest of actions, and the most kindest of cooking. Until, until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet and KBUU and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange. 
Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new broadcast and continue to harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on iTunes and SoundCloud. To learn more about Lisa's global practice as an applied positive psychology coach specializing in lifestyle management as well as addiction and trauma recovery services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness.